Today, we get to consider the love of God. And if there's one truth that people know inside and outside the church, there's probably something to do with God being love. There's something to do with, we know that this is supposed to be about love. It's one attribute of God. If there's one known, it's probably that God is love. If there's one thing that we know that Christians are supposed to be about, believers are supposed to be about, it's probably something to do with love. And while God is love and we're supposed to be about love, all those things might be known by people both inside and outside the church. What's not as well known is the context for which those truths are found in. And specifically, what's not as well known is the aim even of those contexts for which those truths are to be found in. In 1 John, John, this beloved apostle, beloved disciple of Jesus, he writes to a beloved church that he had partnered with, that he had been with, that had a significant split in their midst. People that they had lived life with, that they had walked with, that they had confessed the same truths with, had left this, this body. And they had left the ones who remained very rattled. They were discouraged in some ways. They were full of doubts and questions. And John, this kind of, at, at, this, at this time, aged apostle who loves them and cares about them and loves the truth and cares about the truth, he addresses those who remained within the church who need assurance, who need to be shored up in the truth and in the faith that he had given to them. He, he writes them and addresses them here in our passage today with one of his favorite topics, the topic of love. And he writes to this group, where this truth that God is love is found, and the context of what John wants, it just makes it clear that he calls believers to love one another. John wants his readers to know that God is love, and because God is love, those who know him should also love one another. So this attribute of God should be displayed on the ground in our lives, in the lives of believers, in relationship with one another. So because God is love and it comes from God and it's who he is, love should be present in the midst of believers. And so John, here he uses it both as a test, uh, an assurance to them and a command. So look in verse seven again. He says, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, John isn't saying that if you love in any form, like if you just love, then you're born of God, then you're from God, then you know God. We know that's not true, right? We know that's not true because let's just say you love an idol. Does that mean then you're born of God, know God, and love God? Oh, of course not, right? That, that couldn't be what John is saying here. They said, if you love in any form, then you know God, you're from God, you've been born of God. Or, or I think of the story of, of Amnon and Tamar in Second uh, Samuel chapter 13, where it says, this is one of David's sons and one of David's daughters, where, or Amnon, it says that he loved his sister, or in the translation you guys are using, he was infatuated with her. The, the translation, uh, so if you, if you keep up with some of the language, like most people have heard of agape love, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word agape there for that love that he has for her. And, and what he does with this love is that he goes on to rape her and then he puts her away because he then despises her after that. So did he love her? Well, maybe in some sense of the word, but does that mean he's from God, that he knows God, that he's been born of God? Of course not. Now, we're probably not in danger of trying to justify Amnon and love and saying that he might be from God because we know that love seems so far off track. But what about other loves that don't seem as far off track? Like love for your family. 
Love for your spouse, love for your children, love for your parents. Does that show, does that kind of love show that you're from God, born of God and know God? And even in those, these good loves, we have to say no. Because many wicked people we know love their families dearly. Many loving parents idolize their children and are indifferent to God. So of course, love alone doesn't mean that one is from God, is born of God, knows God. That would be to set up love as almost like a pseudo savior, that if you love in some form, and let's make it more pure than Amnon, if we love in some form, then we're from God and know of God, as if, if I love rightly, then I'm in with God. Lots of people who don't know God love and show love. And they do it in great ways. I mean, you think about war. Here are people that love their country, love their comrades, love things around them, and gave their lives for They showed great love in some sense, but that, again, doesn't mean that they're from God and know God. To say that one who loves, God, who loves in general has been born of God without the context is to go into some errors and is very dangerous and could lead into some sort of false assurance because there are so many disordered loves that show that one is then the opposite, not from God. And John isn't saying that if you love in any form, then you're from God, you know God, you're born of God. This love command has to be read in context. And what does he say here? Let us love one another. Because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God. The context is this love for one another. And and who is that? In this writing that John gives in 1 John, this one another that he talks about are those that he had in chapter one, verse three. He says, what I had seen, what I'd beheld, what I'd touched with my hands, concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus, I've, I've delivered over to you. It's those who had that, who knew that, who believed in the words that he had proclaimed to them. It's those who in chapter two, verse one, he says, they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's those those who know that they have an advocate, that they are trusting and relying upon Jesus as their advocate. It's those that he affirms in chapter two, where he says to them, you are the ones who your sins are forgiven. You are the ones who know God. You have overcome the evil one. They are the ones who, when others left in the midst of some controversy, they remained because they confessed as you read through First John, they confess the Father and the Son. They confess that the, Jesus is the Christ. They confess that he had come in the flesh. And so what John has done all through this epistle is he ties faith and love together. And the one another that he's talking about are those who have faith because those two, faith and love, he vitally links together and he's doing that here in this command. The love commanded is a love that issues from this heart that believes that trusts in Jesus, that has believed in the specific things that he has given to them, that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, that he's come in the flesh, that if you know Jesus, you know and have the Father, that Jesus is your advocate before him. But it's also love to a specific people. This is no vague one another to them. When he says love one another, these are faces in the room. These are people that they could behold with their eyes. They could lay their eyes on them. They could see them. This is why John could write, dear friends, let's love one another because it's from God and everyone loves has been born of God. He can say that because they're around them. And he can use this as a test. You can know that you're from God and born of God when you love the people that you can see right around you. Like they could actually use this as a test in their lives to see if like, do I have sincere faith? Well, I don't know. What am I doing with the people that I can lay my eyes on right around me? And he continues with, with verse eight. He says this, that the one who does not love does not know God because God is 
love. One who doesn't love couldn't be from God because he says, God is love. And out of all the things you could have said about God is and put whatever on the end there, like God could have determined whatever to put there. He's God. And what we get is that God is love. Like what a thought, what a statement that God is love. To say God is love is to say that Love issues from the very being of God. Like it's who he is. It's not saying that God equals to love. It's not saying that. Or to say that God is only love. God is love doesn't then cancel out all the other attributes of God and all that else that God is. We, we see this even in John. It says in John chapter 1 verse 5 that God is light. So it doesn't say like not a lot of people claim this. Not everyone says, hey, God is light and only light. So he can't be these other things. But sometimes we do that with love, don't we? Like, God is love, so he can't be all these other things. Like, wait a second. John said God is light, and he said God is love. So God is love then doesn't cancel out other attributes that he have, like light. Like, the, the speaking of his holiness, his absolute purity. Love is God's nature, like holiness, like his purity. It's, it's a fundamental characteristic of who he is. It's who God most truly is. Now, people, verse 7, have to be be commanded to love. God doesn't have to be commanded to love. That's who he is. It's a fundamental characteristic of who God is. So God's love is is fundamental to who he is. It's it's, his very character. So when we talk about God being love, this isn't a mood. It it doesn't just come and go. It's not not spontaneous, like, I decided to love today, now I don't. Now I decided I need to pull it back and forth. It's not fitful, it's not inconsistent, it's his very heart. It's, again, as if you were to do surgery on God, you open him up, you look inside there, and in there is love, whatever that would look like. It's who he is, eternally, freely, by nature, you open him up, and he's full of love. Here's a a kind of more precise definition from a theologian. Love is that perfection in God which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. It is the affection which the creator feels towards his sentient creatures as such. And here's what it does to John, this aged apostle who was loved dearly by Jesus. In chapter three, verse one, he sees the love of God and he just, it stops him in his tracks. He says, see, this manner of love that God has given to us. See, have you ever said that when you've thought about the love of God? Have it ever just stopped you in your traction like, wow, see what kind of love that, that God has given to us? You know, I love definitions. They're good, right? But notice that John didn't give one. In chapter four, verse eight, he, he doesn't define love for us. He applies it. He says, love one another. He doesn't detail it for us. He, he commands us to reflect that. It, it's not then just a love to only be dissected and, and parsed out. It's a love to be received. It's a love to be, to be given. And then God is love. It, it communicates that, that God is the source of our love for one another. It's the ground of our love for one another. It's the ground of his original audience's love for one another. Love is from God, a God who is himself Love and his love flows to them and then should be flowing out from them to one another. So it seems as if the first thing that John would have his listeners, his readers, his church do with the truth the, that God is love is not to define it, but to do it, to live it out. Uh, R.C. Sproul says that the, the Bible seems to be more concerned about what love 
does than what love is. Like God is love should be examined and explained. Do that. Talk to pastors and ask them, like, what books do I need to read to understand more fully the love of God? But don't just do that. Don't do that at the expense, especially of loving one another. Because what John does with this reality that God is love, he says, love one another. Read theologians, think deeply, meditate much on God is love. But by all means, love. With all the areas of applications that he could have given here, with all of the words of explanation that are available to this one who'd meditated much on the love of God, John says about it, he says, God is love, so love one another. With all the ways to think about who to love even, What do we do, John, with those who had left us? What do we do with those who are claiming another kind of Christ? What do we do with uh, all these different things? He doesn't spell all that out. He says, love one another. Because God is love, he is the source of love. And so he knows that when he says these things and he commands them to love one another, they have all of they need to get busy in their context. God is love. He knows what they need. He has given them what they need. And he says, because God is love, love should be present. Love flows from God to you and it should flow out to one another. It is then both a command here in 1 John and kind of a a means of assurance that you can look around, you're loving one another, then that can show that you are from God, that you know God. Now, again, John doesn't strictly define what God is love here. He doesn't put out words on a page. God is love and here's what that means. But he does explain it with actions that God has shown in the world. So so look in verse nine. God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. I love, again, that out of all the things that we could have said, God is, and, and out of all the words that we could have gotten, we got love. And from that, not only that, but that love isn't hidden. And it's, it's also, it's, it's not like this was only for the elites. It wasn't like a special group that can know that God is love. It wasn't just this private event for only a few to see. It was displayed clearly. You know some of the most beautiful words in verse nine? Among us, among us. So how? How does he say that? It was through the son that this was displayed. And here's what John said in in chapter one, verse one, he started out, he said, the very things that we have seen with our own eyes, we'd beheld, that we had touched concerning Jesus, concerning the word of life, we had proclaimed to you. They hadn't seen it, they hadn't touched it, they had heard it through John. John had seen it and touched it. And through the proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the love of God was made manifest, was made known to who was hearing John. So Jesus' coming reveals God's love. It shows it to those who can hear about it. Among us is what he says. Among us, beautiful words. I love this. Jesus' coming doesn't start some love. Right? He doesn't start God's love. He doesn't show something new about God. He doesn't give a different take on God. He makes manifest, he reveals what's already there. He's not rebranding God because like, man, God, you've had a hard time in the Old Testament and people are reading that and they think it's kind of weird that you're kind of mean. So I'm gonna reveal something new. 
He doesn't do some rebranding. He's not adding or subtracting something to make God a little bit more palatable to the people that are a few years removed from the Old Testament or a few few years removed from Jesus' life. He's not trying to make God more palatable. He's not showing how God has evolved into something different, showing a new style from God, like you knew that style, but here's 2.0 version. He's not doing any of that. He came to make manifest among creation, among people, the love of God, the nature of God that was already there, and he did it as the the exact imprint of that nature. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt. So he is revealing the fullness of God, and God is love. So what does he make evident in his coming? That very reality that God is love. And he shows it perfectly and gloriously. Now, as you read verse 9, you, you might get the sense like, I might have heard something like this before. And it's possible that John, even in verse 9, is meditating on some of the other words that he's thought about before. You, you might know John three sixteen, where he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And both of these, 4, 9 and three sixteen, have this beautiful word, that. That gives us a a purpose, a a statement like, why did you do that? And in verse 9, he says, he came in the world that we might live through him. Like the good news just keeps rolling down here to us because God is love. And then he says that he has made known to us this love through his son Jesus. And that, that his goal in that, making that love known, is that we might live. The goal from God is life. God wants us to, he's not only love, he wants us to know that love and he wants us to life. So what is life in John? Life in John is believing in Jesus. Life in John is knowing God. That's eternal life in this world. That is life in John. And and he says life is then giving your life is a life of love to others around you. And so there's this clear connection, this clear link between life and love that is not only received but displayed. In chapter three, verse 14, He says, we know we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. There's this clear connection, this clear link between if you have life, there's love. That's what God wants for you. And there's a connection between life and love. Now, here's what happens is that it sounds really sweet to say of God's love that God so loved me that he sent his son. And maybe you've heard that. I heard that growing up, like uh, John 3.16, you, you like God so loved, and you, you can kind of mark out world and write your name above that. Now, a couple things we could say about that, right? Don't make a habit of like scratching out words in the Bible and writing different words. And in some sense, that of course can be true that God does love you, or even sing songs like this, like God didn't want heaven without me. And we make it very personal. He didn't want heaven without me, so he brought heaven down, Right? There's some truth and some reality in that, and that sounds really sweet to say. We could say it even here in this verse, like, God made manifest, he revealed love to me, and I hope he does reveal his love to you, but that's only part of the truth, and a shrinking, I think, of the love of God. See, God sent the Son for a people, that this people then may live a life of love with one another. Jesus was sent not to give eternal life to individuals, but to win a community of eternal life people who love one another. And we get to look at the extent of this love here in this verse. Here's the links that he went to in order to make that community of eternal life people who love one another a reality. Here's the links. Verse 10. 
Love consists in this. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I don't know if you guys have seen the, the movie Elf. I, I might suggest that as maybe the next movie in the park. Christmas or no, that movie's all right. You know, like it's, it's watch Elf, Buddy the Elf. And Buddy the Elf is a cotton-headed ninny muggins, or at least he says he is. You know, he gets to that point where he's making the etch-a-sketches, and as he's making them, he's falling way behind. And so they, he, like, he talks to the, the elf in charge, like, man, I'm, I've only made this many. He's like, whoa, you're, you're way behind schedule. And Buddy has this moment of despair where he says, I'm a cotton-headed ninny muggins. And so the other elves around him, like, this is the North Pole. This is a happy place. So they're like, they're trying to cheer him up. Like, no, you're, you're not a cotton-headed ninny muggins. And so they say, like, you're, you're, you're good at a lot of things. And they start looking around, like, what's Buddy uh, the Elf good at? And they're like, uh, well, you changed the batteries in the, you know, the smoke detector. And, and you, you bring us down an octave in the elf choir, those kind of things. So, but they have to look really hard to, like, let's find some reason to convince Buddy that he's this lovable character. And, and so he says, you're not, you're not a cotton because you're just special. And, and we can kind of try to convince ourselves of that same thing. Like, let's think about ways that we are special so that God might then, then love us. That might maybe explain some of the love of God. But you, you read verse 9 and 10, and there are no hints anywhere that God sends his son into the world because people are special in some way. You get no hints that God sends his son into the world because people have some sort of loveliness about them that he just finds like attractive enough to like, okay, let's send the son for that. That there's no sense in, in this passage or anywhere in the scripture that God is somehow like lonely and he needs a friend. And so maybe I'll send the son and we'll see what we can do with that. No, he says, and this is love. God shows his love in this way, that he sends his son to a world, and the world here is not a world that is special in any sort of positive sense. It's a world that has rejected God and walked away from him. It's a world that's in rebellion to God, and this is love, that God didn't wait for that world, those people, to make the first move, to become lovely. He makes the first move, he goes after them. He loves by sending his son. The, the son was in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit in eternity past, right? Like, the Son didn't need anything. We're receiving perfect fatherhood, perfect in relationship with the, the Spirit. They're receiving the glory and honor within the Godhead that he deserves. Like, that Son was sent. What explains someone who's in that state coming to this world that had rejected him and didn't want him? What explains that? That God is love that the very overflow of his nature is the sending. And the scripture makes it really clear that, that God, his love, and that the, his love, the overflow of his love, moves toward us in love, the sending of the son. John three sixteen. God so loved the world, what? What flowed out of that love for the world that he, that he sends his only son. But the son wasn't sent just for a visit. There was a mission. Look in verse 10 again. What's the mission? Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The, the word for atoning sacrifice there is the word propitiation, right? And, and because I'm, I'm, I'm new to St. Louis, 
I don't know any of the streets, I don't know any, but you guys know the streets, you, like, you know where to drive. Because you can learn some directions, we can learn what propitiation is, right? Like, here's propitiation. It is a, a turning away of the wrath of God. The, the object of this atoning sacrifice, the object of propitiation is God himself. It's his wrath that needs to be propitiated. It's his wrath that needs to be turned aside, turned away. So God is love, and there needs to be an atoning sacrifice for sin. And those two go together without any sort of contradiction whatsoever. Right? God's love and God's wrath, then, are not contradiction in terms. That is, that a, a loving God isn't and can't be indifferent towards sin. That's what the wrath is pointed at, right? He, he is this God whose wrath is pointed at sin. And, and God, because he is love, he's not indifferent towards sin and evil. In other words, like you couldn't love goodness without hating evil. And the intensity of God's wrath against evil shows the, the intensity of God's love for goodness. And that wrath from God it is pointed at something. It's pointed at sinners. And so we needed a propitiation. We needed an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the son was sent to be a propitiation, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How does he do this? By, by dying a sacrificial death on the cross. Paul would say he became a curse for us. Or, or Peter would say that he himself bore sins in his body on the tree. He became sin. And, and so one theologian helps us. He says this, that it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating and God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. And yeah, at this point, like I just like to say propitiation. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son, when he took our place and died for us. God needs to be propitiated. God becomes the propitiation and he is the one who is propitiated by the propitiation. Like, this is love, John says. It's this kind of love that, that makes the psalmist say like, God's love is as high as the heavens are above the earth. That, that leads hymn writers to write. I, I read this, it's on the Wilson wall if you've ever been in there in this room, I'm saying in that, that if we could fill the ocean with ink, and we could have the, the sky be made of parchment and every stock be a quill, then we could have every person in the world write down the love of God and, and the whole world couldn't contain it. Now, one measure of love is found in its giving. And God gave here, verse 10, his only son as a propitiation for sins. Like, how do you measure that? How do you measure that? Uh, one, like, one author said this, like, to give us Christ is more than if God had given us all the world. He can make more worlds, but he has no more Christ to give. Man, unbeliever, if you don't know Christ, like, wrath is directed at you, but you need to see God's love and trust in Jesus. And he can be the propitiation for your sin too, turning away the Father's wrath. But believer, part of your response to this love that he has no more Christ to give, he already gave him, part of our response is to do nothing. Receive it. Believe it. Bask in it. Like, find assurance in it. Swim in God's love. One author said that the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness that you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. 
Church, like, don't do God the unkindness to not believe what he said about you. Don't do God this unkindness of not believing his love for you. Be assured of his love for you. And part of our response to that is then to question ourselves regularly. I love the questions of the scripture, especially Romans 8, verse 32. He says, hey, he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, here's the question, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Ask yourself that. Like he gave his son, he's shown us this great love, it's been revealed to us so clearly, and it's so big that we, we could fill the oceans with ink and write it all out, and we still couldn't fill the whole, so the whole world with the, the greatness of God's love. We can't measure it, and if he's done that, how will we also with him give us all things? If God loves us and gave his son for us, what's he gonna withhold from us? Nothing good will he withhold, right? So what we do with that is then we throw down complaining, we get rid of our, our bickering. We, we cast away fear. We're done with divided loyalties because no one loves us like this God loves us. And we receive and know that we are loved. But John, again, doesn't leave readers wondering why or what he wants them to do with this love and how he wants them to respond to God's love. He wants readers who have all the love they could ever need to respond to God's love. And here's how he says it again. Verse 11. Dear friends, beloved, if God, so loved, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. That is, God is love, and because he is love, those who know him and are from him and are born of him, they, they start having this love flow out of their lives. And again, we have to be commanded to love. God doesn't have to be commanded that, but we do. In response to what he has given, we need to be commanded to love. And the command to love is really, really concrete here. It's to one another. Again, it's, it's people in the room. It's faces around them. It's eyes that they could make eye contact with. It's people they can see and touch. And he says it's concrete in another way is that you should love in the same way that God loved you. And that is in its giving for the good of one another. And so you, you move toward others in love. You, you move, move toward them in attention and affection. You, you move toward them for their, for their bounty and, and you move towards them for their, in kindness towards them as the Father has moved in kindness toward us. You, you move towards them with affection. And he says that then if that's the way God has loved us, you love in the same kind of way. There, there's no excuse for one who knows God. It is concrete for you to love one another because you can see those faces and you know the way. You've seen it. But there's also this love is, is, that's for one another is powerful in another way. Because John says something extraordinary in verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. T to fully know and experience God's love you have to love one another. You have to love others and then that then means what's implied here is that you're gonna have to receive love from others. In other words, you have to be with actual people in real community of faith where you're loving others and they're loving you. God's love flows down and it hits people and then it flows from person to person, right? That's how it is flowing here Within the body of faith, within the church, a body of believers, people, again, that you can put your eyes on. 
In other words, then divine moments are happening when Christians gather together. God's love is flowing. It's flowing from person to person within the church. Divine moments are happening as we gather. God is and his love is abiding in that. As you love one another, God is abiding in that. God is working and flowing. His love is flowing in that and through that. But he also says that it's perfected. It's made complete. So in this one another love, God's love reaches its full effect. It reaches the greatest earthly expression. That God's love reaches its greatest earthly expression when we love one another. The same thing cannot be true, said to be true, about any other context. But he says, when you love one another, it's made complete. It's perfected among us. It's shown among us. And it's just a normal context. Gatherings like this. Groups in your home. Playdates at the park. Around the table with other believers. And he says, of that normal, everyday experience with everyday, normal believers that God's love is somehow being made complete and perfected in that. It's reaching in those moments that seem maybe small and insignificant, its greatest earthly expression. Normal believers doing normal things. God's love, which is so great, is reaching its greatest earthly expression. We have this uh, thread uh, between our pastors and wives at our church in Oklahoma. And, and in that thread, like there was a Sunday, it was an Easter Sunday. You know, it's like with the day you sing your favorite songs and, and you, you, you celebrate baptisms. And we did all that that day. And, and one of the responses back in that thread was just like, oh, encouragement for the day. Such a fun Sunday. So thankful for this Sunday and what God did among us. And, and one of the wives said this, I thought surely Jesus would return. Like she was just expressing like because of what it was like, because of what we were doing, singing praises, hearing God's word, praying, seeing the gospel in in baptism and and hearing God's word about his triumph over Satan, sin and death and and Jesus' resurrection. It felt as if Jesus could return. And I remember thinking, can that be every week? Because God's love is so great, when it explodes on a community of people, it can feel as if heaven itself has come down. And it can happen in a group during the week, around the table with another believer, on Sunday at 4.30 in the basement of a church. Heaven itself is coming down in these moments. And that can not only be every week, but every single time when there are two or more gathered. But you must love one another. And one author gives us some great questions, I think, to examine ourselves as we think about how we're doing in this area. He said, could an observer learn from the quality and degree of love that I show to others? My wife, my husband, my family, my neighbors, people at church, people at work, anything at all about the greatness of God's love to me? Could they? I think it's too bad that people know inside and outside the church that God is love, something about, we're supposed to be about love without the context of John here. 
that God is love, and because that's true and a reality, you should love one another. But church, guess what? Ordinary believers can change that by loving one another in ordinary, everyday ways. And, and the Father has, has given us all the love that we need to, to set our lives and to set about doing just that. So church, uh, let's do that. Let us love one another. Would you pray with me?